Hello, and welcome to our In the Zone podcast, focusing on flow cytometry techniques and phosphoflow. In this podcast, we hope to explore how phosphorylated biomarkers can be monitored as an indication of drug efficacy during the drug development process. Here with me today is Tiona Roshupkina and Richard Hughes of LGC Group, who will help illuminate the current role and potential of phosphorylated biomarkers and phosphoflow. Welcome, Tiona and Richard. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for being here with us today. So my first question is, over the years, what significant improvements have been made to cytometers which improve their robustness? Well, flow cytometry has started um, way back in 1978, and its use was mainly confined to academic sector. Um, as the uh, drugs developed, as they become, became more complex, and as we entered the era of cell therapy, there was a clear demand for instruments and machines for the uh, use of for industry. And these machines, flow cytometers, have diversified greatly. They became faster, some became more um, sensitive, some became according to the need and application uh, of the scientist. Academia has different demands. It has demands for the complexity of instruments. So we have now instruments with 42 colors um, and um, CROs have demand for less complex but more high throughout output and more sensitive instrument and more um, stable instruments. So there are those that are concentrated, the, the manufacturers concentrated on producing the instruments with the specific demands of the clients or in the academia versus industry, pharmaceutical industry. I mean, it's also not, it's not just the, um... The flow cytometers themselves that have improved. Um, you know, from a bioanalytical perspective, we need reproducibility in all, in all areas of the technology. So not just the the endpoint instrument, but you know the the, the fluorophores that we're using to label the proteins, the labeling um, chemistries, but also the liquid handling and the, the preparation of the um, cells and the staining of the samples before they even get onto the flow cytometer. And that's, there's been significant improvements in that also over the years, which has enabled us to be able to use this technology in the bioanalytical lab. So what sort of challenges have you been met with when starting a new flow group in such a regulated environment? Yeah, it, it is um, demanding. Um, to set up the new group in the regulated environment. And one of the biggest probably demands were when we started, there are a couple of good quality publications with recommendations or just general guidelines such as EBF guidelines. However, there were, wasn't a consensus opinion in the, um, in the industry of what constitutes for a good validated um, data. And in addition, I mean, flow cytometry data and application of flow cytometry can vary so much that it's really hard to come up with good guidelines that would cover all the essays, all the situations, all uh, pathologies, all kinds of drugs. So it was mostly left out to devices of flow cytometrists to determine what constitutes as a good fit for purpose validation and a good fit for purpose data. So it's setting up uh, for the regulated environment was one of the big challenges. 
Another big challenge, I would say, is setting up a good source of the metrics. As you know, it's very important in flow cytometry to have a good quality material to validate the experiment and validate data. So logistics are very, very uh, big and we have very short stability of the windows with most of the assays. These are live cells. So setting up the source of the metrics in the Cambridge in nearby hospitals and was another really big challenge. And of course, some minor challenges such as training up uh, people to the very high um, technical skills as flow cytometry does require skill to run even at more basic levels. So training people, setting up the logistics and setting up the good procedures were major probably, I would say. Richard, maybe you have something else to it? Yeah, I think from my perspective, um, one of the biggest hurdles we encountered was um, actually from a software point of view. Um, you know, in our PKADA groups, we routinely use Watson limbs for data management and regression. Um, you know, a limbs system like that is not suitable for flow cytometry data. Flow cytometry data sets are, you know, very complex and multi-parameter. And you really need a good software package to deal with that. But not only that, you need a software package which is, um, you know, meets all the current standards uh, for data integrity. And we spent a long time assessing um, the different softwares out there, really, to find one that um, met our CSV requirements, you know, to enable us to be able to use that in a regulated environment. So, what is fossil flow, and what can it be used for? Phosphoflow is a technique that we basically assesses the activation of different molecules in the cell. It's called phosphoflow because this activation is marked by transfer of the phospho group onto the protein and conveying its the activity. This transfer usually happens on protein kinase, for example. The protein kinases and the phosphoflow generally when they are measured. They are the members of the activation pathway, as I said. And this, this is very, very important technique in the drug development because it measures the response to the drug by the phosphorylation by the different molecules, target molecules. For it can be used in various assay, for example, in um, as a PD biomarker, the activation of the molecule can be de detected in the cells upon binding of the receptor on the surface of cells. What sets the phosphoflow out um, compared to evaluation of the phosphorylation, for example, by other technique um, is that it happens on the, the, you can detect simultaneously in which cells this phosphorylation happens. And not only one cell type, but uh, various cell types. So it's a very multi-parameter data. We can detect phosphorylation, let's say, in the T cells, in B cells, monocytes, in rare cells, such as stem cells. We can detect it in the specific um, disease cells, such as leukemia cells or cancer cells. And um, phosphorylation is particularly used in early phase clinical trials to establish the mechanism of action of various drugs. 
so combine this with the specific target itself, it's an extremely useful technique in drug development to assess what drug does at um, what concentration and monitor uh, the participants of the um, clinical trial uh, for the changes of phosphorylation in their cells in peripheral blood. Um, and it's very quick, it's very, it collects um, very large amount of data in relatively short time and gives quite, it becomes very informative data for the uh, pharmaceutical industry when they are determining the drug efficacy, drug safety mechanisms of action, etc. Then what can Phosphoflow offer that normal ELISA-based technologies uh, to measure p-antigens can't? Um, Phosphoflow can be applied in a various uh, ways to the drug development. And one of the applications we can use it to detect, for example, immunogenicity, particularly when you have the immunogenicity against the receptor. So basically, we can detect whether drug becomes um, in NAPS assay, for example, um, neutralizing antibody assay, where the drug competes with the receptor, sorry, the neutralizing antibody competes with the receptor. And we will see, um, for example, we don't see either activation or we will see inactivation of the phosphoflow depending on the assay. And we can actually determine to the level at which um, this drug affects um, the, the neutralizing antibody competes with the drug when that happens. Um, as I said already described in the previous question that the, it also can be a PD biomarker. It can also determine the state of the cells in many cases, such as activation. Um, many of the phosphoflow biomarkers are indicative of um, some function in the cells, such as cell death, cell proliferation, survival of, for example, cancer cells. So it's a very good bio set of biomarkers to determine what state, functional state the cell is. So essentially, it's a very useful functional assay. Yeah, and, and I'll add to that, just, you know, in, in comparison with um, ELISA-based techniques, obviously, with an ELISA, you're, you're not getting that level of cellular um, information you're essentially forced into preparing a cell lysate and you're detecting the phosphorylated antigen in a total sense um, you know irrespective of what cell that that signal could be coming from so you don't get that additional level of information um, and for small molecules for example that can be extremely useful if your if your molecule for example is hitting monocytes over um, t cells um, in a certain situation, you wouldn't get that level of information from an ELISA that, that, that flow offers where you can really um, tease out the, the independent cell populations and look where the phosphorylated signals is present or absent. So bouncing off of that, what sort of data output um, can we expect from this type of analysis? The data is extremely complex and not, you, you can get up to 23 reportable results from just one tube of analysis. This is how um, complex and how big 
the data set you are getting from the for fairly small price for a fairly small time. Um, usually the flow analysis takes, um, the phosphor flow particularly takes a day. Uh, means for sample analysis takes it's even less, like a couple of hours. The acquisition on machine takes several minutes and then analysis of the data perhaps takes some time. In basically one day, you have 23 different outputs for a couple of microliters of the peripheral blood. This is why it's extremely um, robust and extremely, sorry, extremely useful and extremely um, easy to use for the um, drug development. So what types of assessments do you perform when you validate a fossil flow assay? Um, the assessments entirely depend on uh, type of assay we are handling, whether it is and its purpose of use. Um, so we, we say in flow cytometry, we're doing fit for purpose validation, um, depending on the um, endpoint, whether it's an exploratory endpoint, secondary, well, we are, have different levels of validation and assessments um, will depend on that. In addition, it's a scientific goal, what goals the scientists have. So there are quite um, extensive method development involved of creating all the controls, creating all the um, controls for validation first um, and setting up a good assay that works every time. And the invalidation, we are doing the usual assessments such as precision. We may do LLOQ if it's very rare population to validate that we can detect robustly this um, population and um, have a, a local cutoff where they, we can no longer detect it. Uh, we have uh, usually assessment for, we have titration curves for different drugs and what is the effective range of the um, our assay. So dynamic range of assay where assay is sensitive enough to pick up even minor changes. We would, um, we would do various assessments depending. Unfortunately, in flow cytometry, it's not always possible to do accuracy, for example, because there is no true absolute control for a cell that would be complicated. So we, we are basically have to rely on the relative, so data that comes out of flow cytometry, mostly quasi-quantitative. So we, we are, it's relative to something else. But the biggest challenges that we meet in validation often we can quite it's quite relatively straightforward to achieve you know <clears throat> reproducibility and precision with matrix that we um we might harvest uh, from healthy individuals in-house but um stability is often the, the key parameter that we need as as Tiran touched earlier the, the logistics around sample collection sample um getting the samples to our site and analyze within a time window is, is is often what forms the bulk of the validation, just, just figuring out and, and, and verifying exactly yeah. what window we have to, valid, to, to analyze the samples in. And um, uh, we've touched, we've touched early on the developments in the flow cytometry. And one of the developments were the all the stabilizing agents for such cases. Um, and there has been great improvement. We've improved for run-of-the-mill essays such as phenotyping. The um, 
stability has improved from several days to one, two weeks. However, phosphofluor is still a challenge because it's extremely, extremely sensitive and depends on the state of the cells they are. Um, there is a saying in flow, what you put in, the same you get out. So quality that you put in, quality of samples you put in, in flow would uh, eventually determine what quality data you will get out mostly. That is all we have time for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Tiona and Richard, and for sharing your knowledge. To our listeners, you can find more In The Zone features at Bioanalysis Zone. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you.